Nick at Night is a production of Council Communications. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Nick and Night Show. We're having a few technical difficulties um, uh, this evening with uh, <clears throat> some of the stuff over on the Facebook side of things. So we're going to go with uh, the online audience, and I certainly hope that uh, you'll uh, stick around and join me. The numbers are 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. You can also send me an email to nick at night at latenightcouncil.com. I'm just bringing up all the stories here. I want to get. I want to go over tonight. Uh, there certainly is no lack of them. Uh, as a matter of fact, I had quite a quite a pile of them here before I had to reboot my computer, and I lost them all. So I got to go dig them all back up again. So bear with me for just a second while I dig through the pile and bring up uh, some of the stuff that's on on the list tonight. And believe me, it's a long list. There doesn't seem to be any shortage of uh, things to talk about. Um, <clears throat> I will tell you that gas prices have gone up again, like that's a surprise. And isn't it funny? It's one of the most frustrating things I think I, I try to go through, uh, or I go through is, and I'm sure you do too, um, is how when something happens anywhere in the world, uh, all of a sudden there's this, um, oh, how do I put it, sudden spike. Remember when there was uh, the war in Libya and things like that, a bomb would go off, some uh, somewhere over overseas, and the price of oil would jump overnight. It was just unbelievable how fast the price of oil would go up, and then it would take forever to go back down again. And what was just sad was that uh, now we uh, have a situation where I'm just, if I sound a little scattered, I am. Um, we we have this um, hurricane down hurricane um, down in uh, Texas. And there's massive refineries down there. It's one of the things that the Houston and Texas area is known for, um, is for its oil refineries. It's a major uh, refineries. It does about 20% of the world's oil, or of North American oil, and uh, refining, I should say. And all, overnight, overnight, the price of oil goes up like 10 or 12 cents. What's funny about that is it doesn't seem to uh, work the other way. Like, the, the numbers will go up automatically, uh, overnight, but when it comes time to go down, they'll try. They'll cry out, oh, "Well, you know that oil was 
in the pipeline a long time and just, you know, they give one excuse after another. Now, the thing, a lot of people get mad at the oil companies for that. And I'm not saying that's that they don't bear some of the blame. But remember who makes the most amount of money when it comes to oil. Is it the government? Is it the oil companies? Well, yeah, they don't do badly, that's for sure. Um, oil's like real estate. They don't, uh, you never run out. So you have a situation where you have, um, oh, come on. I just had it on top of my head. Where the more oil goes up, the more money the government makes. So they're in no rush to see oil comes down either. And it's really, really sad um, when you see the kind of stuff that goes on um, overseas and you watch this kind of stuff, or not overseas, but, you know, it it's always seems to be to the disadvantage of the consumer, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And that's the part that makes me crazy. Now, uh, let's see. It's just one thing after another. Uh, it goes on and on and on, and I get tired of it because one of the things, we live in a country, uh, I just let me answer this here, Work. that is re rich in resources, absolutely rich in resources. We are so uh, blessed with resources here in Canada that there's no way we should be paying the kind of money for oil that we're paying. I just, I guess I just want to get that off my chest because like everybody else, you know, every time the price of um, uh, oil goes up, uh, we see it's always the, you know, the, the working class because, and I'm not trying to pit one class against another. You know, it's it's just that it's always these policies that hurt those who can afford it the least. It hurts them the most. And that's what drives me crazy. So I thought I'd kind of lead off with that with a little bit of frustration. But more than frustrating is, let me just find this story. It's enough. Oh, man. Okay. Now, I had a discussion with my son today. And I know that the name just drives people crazy. Absolutely crazy. When it comes to, um, there's a certain name in, in the Canadian um, landscape that when you mention it, people have a visceral reaction to it. And no, yes, it's just, one of those names is Justin Trudeau. He, he's part of this, but the name I'm referring to is Omar Cotter. Well, apparently Omar wants to spend a little more time around his big sister, who is just the nastiest person you've ever met. Just not, these people are not nice. There's nothing redeemable about them as far as personality is concerned. And just, wow. So anyway, the story comes from the Toronto Sun on the, on what's today? Two days ago, on the 27th. Former Guantanamo Bay detainee Omar Cotter returns to court this week to ask that his bail conditions be eased, including allowing him unfettered contact with his controversial older sister, more freedom to move around Canada, and unrestricted Internet access. All right, well, the very first thing, if you're any kind of judge at all, you go, no, no, and no, now get out of my courtroom. Because, first of all, think about what he's asking for. He wants to move around the country. This guy's, don't forget who this guy is, okay? He is a confessed uh, terrorist. He's a traitor. He is, you know, uh, he claimed he was sorry for everything he did, but didn't give... Uh, um, uh, Spec Sergeant Spears' wife a dime, and she sued him for 134 million dollars because of you know uh, the the um, the death of her husband on the battlefield, and he gets a 10 million dollar bonus 
from the government. Now, you can. I know there's a lot of legal arguments back and forth about it, but the bottom line is there's no way this guy should have got a dime. And there's certainly no way, no way in hell that this guy should go anywhere near, um, you know, the unfettered, first of all, no Internet access. Now, that's a tough one to block because, let's face it, you can do it on your cell phone. I was One of the things I was trying to do before the show tonight was figure out how to make my cell phone sub in for my laptop so I could do the Facebook Live part of the show. That didn't exactly pan out. For some reason, this technology I have, it's a Samsung 4, and for the most part, it works really well. Um, but didn't give me a whole lot of, um, it just didn't work. I, I tried everything I could think of to get to work, and there's just no live video feed on, button on that thing, so I gave up and decided to go online. Um, anyway, long story short, it's hard to police that. Unless you're going to stick him out in a shack with the chickens, you know, no hydro and just just take away everything electronic. It's hard to police it. But the one that bothers me is um, this idea about him getting around, being able to, to uh, talk to his, his sisters. So um, <clears throat> let me jump in uh, halfway down the story. Currently, 30-year-old Cotter can only contact his sister, Zainab. Zainab, yeah, that's how you say it. Zainab, if one of his lawyers or bail supervisor is present, the condition is no longer necessary, he says. I'm now an adult, and I think independently. Even if this was, even if this was, even if the members of my family were to wish to influence my religious or other views, they would not be able to control or influence me in any negative matter. What a load of crap! I'm sorry, I just don't believe him. Zainab Cotter, 37 years old, who recently had a fourth child in Egypt, according to court filings obtained by the Canadian press, was detained in Turkey a year ago for an expired visa. She and her fourth husband, holy cow, subsequently moved to Malaysia but are now said to be living in Sudan and planning to visit Canada. I would like to be able to spend time with her and the rest of our family when she is there, when she is here, sorry. Uh, as far as I'm aware, Zainab is not involved in any criminal activities and is frequently in contact with the Canadian Embassy in order to ensure her paperwork's up to date. Okay, so let's 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 take this and think about it. Omar, first of all, even if she was, and you knew about it, do you think you'd tell us? Do we, th are we have stupid written across our forehead? And just because she goes to the embassy and makes sure her paperwork is filled out, what guarantee is that, that she's not still in engaged in terrorist activities? Or is at least sympathetic to their causes? That's not the kind of stuff you, you, you tell, you know, when you're trying to get back into a country like Canada, you're not going to spill those beans. Although in, in this country, maybe there wouldn't be an impediment after all. Anyway, uh, she was born in Ottawa, who was at one point unable to get a Canadian passport after, after frequently reporting hers lost. Okay, so she's either one of the most clumsy, klutzy women we've ever met, or she's selling them. Or somehow they're not, they're, she's losing control over them. And who knows where they go, because Canadian passports are worth a fortune on the black market. All right. She was also subject to an RCMP investigation in 2005, but faced no charges. Her third husband, Canadian Joshua Boyle, is reportedly still a Taliban hostage, along with his American wife and children in Afghanistan. How many people is this guy married to? In 2008, she went on a hunger strike on Parliament Hill to draw attention to her brother's plight as an American captive in Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, she was serious about that, too. Several years ago, she and her mother infuriated many Canadians by expressing, quote, al quote, pro-Al-Qaeda views. 
Omar Khadr told the Canadian press last month he has no point ha, saw no point in decrying them. Other than the fact that maybe if you really wanted to make us believe it, you would you would have. You know, that, oh, I'm sorry, I've changed my ways. Give me 10 million bucks. Anyway, uh, I'm sorry, this guy doesn't deserve, he, he deserves a lot less than he's, he's got, that's for sure. And I just, I know it's probably a visceral uh, emotional reaction on my part, but I am fed up with people like this playing us like a fiddle. It's absolutely infuriating. Speaking of infuriating, oh, by the way, here's a piece of good news. Uh, we have a story now. I can't believe how many people are dead. Are just absolutely dead set against the cops. I posted this story on my Facebook page, and you would not believe some of the comments that some people made. The most people were very pro cop about it, but others say one even accused them of being drug dealers. Okay, because when they seize cocaine or narcotics, they destroy them. But this individual thought, oh no, now they just you just turn them out into. You know, you've just given the real drug dealers more, more, uh, more uh, free, free supplies to work with, which is utter nonsense. Anyway, the good news is that the OPP seized 1,062 kilograms of pure cocaine valued at $250 million. Okay, that's a little over a ton. A thousand keys keys is or a thousand kilograms is twenty two hundred pounds. So let's call it twenty three hundred pounds for the sake of argument. Twenty three hundred pounds of more than a long ton of cocaine is no longer on the streets. The stuff is poison, and to take it off the street and deprive organized crime of two hundred fifty million dollars. Look, there's no doubt that's a drop in the bucket compared to the overall amount of illegal drugs uh, that enter this country. But $250 million is a lot of money. And I wouldn't want to be the guy responsible for losing it. Here's a little bit of the story. An OPP-led task force has made the biggest cocaine seizure in its history. The OPP said the wide-ranging international probe netted 1,062 kilos of pure cocaine with a street value of a staggering $250 million. According to investigators, three Greater Toronto Area men were masterminds behind the plot to flood Canadian streets with cocaine imported from Argentina. The trio was linked to a smuggling operation that used ocean-going freighters to transport drugs packed in shipping containers. You know, I when I was still on terrestrial radio, we did a, a, a series. I had a guy come in. Uh, if you remember the name Alan Cutler, he was the whistleblower in AdScam going back. Oh, this has got to be a decade now since AdScam. But uh, Alan has since um, taken up, formed an organization to help and support whistleblowers. And give them, you know, uh, support when they want to come out and point out corruption, wrongdoing, and outright theft within the government. And the one gentleman that I was, I, he brought to me, and I forget the guy's name because it was like six, seven years ago. But we talked about how porous uh, the ports are in Halifax, in Vancouver, Montreal, you know, all the major seaports. And it's not the fault of the authorities in those ports. They just don't have the resources. They just don't have the personnel. You're talking about tens of thousands of containers that pass through our ports every month. Not year, month. They bring them in in massive cargo ships. Now, there's no human way. There's no way that the resources we deploy at our ports is going to come anywhere near close enough to be able to take those things and inspect even a small percentage of them. 
So there's lots of drugs and lots of illicit contraband that gets into this country that we never know about because we just don't have the resources. We'd rather spend money on third-world tin, tin, tin pot despotic dictators throwing $250 million away uh, on that could have been spent on port security. We'd rather give the Clinton Foundation tens of millions of dollars for who knows what. We'd rather bring in you know, so-called refugees and put them ahead of people who are legitimately in the immigration line because they're fleeing the horrible place that's called the United States. You know, we'd rather spend money there. Oh, we'd rather spend it anywhere, but on thing, on, except on places where it's actually the government's priority. You know, it's one of their main jobs to secure our ports and our border points. And they obviously have no interest in that. So the fact that they found this stuff is a huge, is a, I think, all I can say is congratulations, guys. Well done. Uh, you know, considering what you're up against, this stuff is, 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 it's just horrible stuff and causes all, costs us billions in our economy and in human suffering every year. And uh, I can't say enough about the guys who actually tracked this down and uh, did the investigation. So well done and a tip of the hat to the OPP because they certainly don't get it often enough. They're usually getting the, you know, the shaft from everybody else when it comes to making sure that, you know, if a cop blinks the wrong way, uh, you know, oh, my God, the, the, the OPP or whatever police force are the worst people on the planet. And they're all they're all horrible and we got to get rid of them and blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah. Except when when it's uh, your your butts on the line and you need help. Who do you call? Do you call me? No. You, you pick up the phone and dial 911 and you get mad when the OPP don't get there fast enough even though the day before you were ragging them out for doing their job. All right. Anyway, I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, we'll have more right here on the Nick Knight Show. EMM Group is the authorized Integraspect distributor for the greater Ottawa area, providing technically advanced insulated concrete forms. The design virtually eliminates waste while providing the ultimate energy-efficient, quiet homes and structures. With over 40 years' experience in the concrete industry, EMM offers the best product to homeowners and contractors. Canadian-made Integraspec is now being used worldwide. More info can be found at Integraspec.com. Don't consider building any other way. Call your ICF specialist, 613-835-2600. Ron Barr, General Manager and CEO of the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario, and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck, so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night, and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Nights when you've got no lights, the check is in the mail, and your little angel hung the cat up by its tail, and your third fiance didn't show. Sometimes you wanna go where everybody knows your name. All right, let's get back to the important stuff. Boy, that was a popular show in his day. 
All right, the numbers are 343-700-4390 or 844-562-4766. One of the other things that's in the news is it just makes me crazy, and I mean this seriously, it just drives me nuts, is when people try to rewrite Canadian history by today's standards. Now, unless you've been living under a rock, you already know this story, and it's the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario calls on districts to rename John A. Macdonald schools. In other words, the teachers union decided that John A., Sir John A., one of the founding fathers of our country, uh, one of the fathers of confederation, actually founding fathers is an American term, but the uh, fathers of confederation, one of the men who signed the British North America Act or created it and sent it off to England for um, approval, uh, you know, they, in other words, they played a very big role in forming the country that we now know and love as Canada. Uh, I won't call him the father of the country. I think that title more rightly belongs to uh, Sir, um, uh, Major General James Wolfe for the defeat of Montcalm at the Battle of Plains of Abraham because that's when Canadian history starts. And I think that uh, the father of the country best fits him, although there's no denying Sir John A. played a huge role in helping Canada get, off, get up you know, at, to... In go, to go from colonial to national and, and nation-state status. Excuse me. <laughs> so I don't think there's any doubt. There's no doubt about that. But they've decided that because this guy was such a terrible guy, let me share with you some of the story. A request by a major teachers' union to strip Sir John A. Macdonald's name from schools across the province has missed the mark, Premier Kathleen Wynne says. You know, for one thing... Well, I, okay, Kathleen Wynne, I don't believe two words out of her mouth. She gets it right on this score, but I think she's doing it not because she thinks Sir John A. is such a great guy, because she recognizes that to take this position is political suicide. So, okay, I'll give her that. She's at least smart enough to figure that out. Sir John A. Macdonald was a, fa was a father of Confederation, our first prime minister, and he contributed greatly to the creation of a stable federal government for Canada. He's an important part of our history, and while decisions about naming schools belong to school boards, I don't believe his name should be removed from schools in Ontario. Okay, that's fine. Get up and say that. But are you going to are you going to read the riot act to the teachers union who supports you in the tens of millions of dollars, and tell them you better not do this or there will be consequences? No, I don't think so. Anyway. So McDonald was far from perfect, and there's no doubt of that. Look, some of the stuff, he there was a scandal going back. Now, by today's standards, it was a tempest in a teapot, something called the rail scandal. And if I remember, and I'm just basically going on memory here, uh, but somebody, it was railroad ties or the actual rails themselves that um, uh, somebody got a contract for, a, I think it was a $25,000 donation to McDonald's campaign or something along that line. There was about $25,000. And in those days, that was a lot of money because uh, you're talking about 18... Well, it's after 1867. Um, so it was a ton of money, but it was about each or either getting a contract to lay or an agreement to purchase some part of the Canadian Pacific Railway. Now, that didn't happen until the 1880s, so that's probably uh, a little bit uh, more... Uh, that's probably when that happened. So, the, you know, he's not scandal-free. And, of course, there was 
when you look back on it, some of his attitudes about the natives and the Métis, like when Louis Riel was executed uh, for treason, one of his comments about it, because there were a lot of uh, French Canadians and Métis wanted him to commute the sentence, and he said, I would not commute his sentence if every dog in Quebec barked for it. And that's, I believe, a virtual, an actual quote. So, okay, look, he was a man of his time. And the world's attitudes about a lot of things were completely different than they are today. And that's true of Lord Cornwallis, and that's true of General Lee, and that's true of all kinds of different things. And you know the other thing about this that I find really fascinating is that at this particular juncture in time, why wasn't this, and let me put it to you this way, why wasn't this an issue last year or the year before? Why wasn't this an issue with Lord Cornwallis two years ago? Did anybody ever even think about this yet then? Isn't it peculiar how all of a sudden you've got everything going on down in the States with people taking down statues commemorating the history of the United States, whether it be Confederate statues, they want to take down Lincoln's statue, uh, they defaced it, and they defaced one of them. Uh, some people even are calling for the destruction of Mount Rushmore for crying out loud. Okay, so at, and at the same time, all of a sudden in Canada, now our historical figures are under assault. It, are, are, do we have stupid written across our forehead? Or is it possible, maybe just mildly possible, that the two are in conjunction? That they're happening at the same time for a reason? That there might be shadows in the background pulling strings to create issues that aren't there? To make it look like countries are divided. Make us fight amongst ourselves over things that don't matter. You know, really, because it didn't matter five years ago. And you can't tell me Native issues were not an issue in the news five years ago. So I don't understand how they can get away with this or why people fall for it. Like if you just stop and you look. Both sides of the border, we have the same issue. Now, it's not nearly as big an issue in Canada as it is in the United States. I get that. But they've got 10 times the population. Okay? They've, their history is 100 years longer than ours. But to go after a statue like Lord Cornwallis, a man who lived 268 years ago, because he was doing the same thing everybody else of his era was doing. They're all mad at him because he was calling for scalps of the natives. Well, guess what the natives were doing? They were scalping each other, and they would take bribe, They would get paid by the different factions trying to gain con the upper hand in, uh, in what was then the colonies, uh, the, both the French and the English, and they'd go scalp for whoever paid them the most money or gave them the best rifle, or in those days, musket. You know, it's funny that they, it's only this. It's only the uh, the British or the white history that these people are upset at. Like, do you see anybody running around wanting to take down Martin Luther King statues? No. Would I suggest they should? No, of course not. I don't have any real bones with Martin Luther King anyway, but that's not the point. Even if I did, I don't think I'd be calling to have his statue taken down. There's a huge bronze statue of Winston Churchill in front of the Halifax Regional Library. 
and it's been there for years, and it's a great statue. It's, have, it's a larger-than-life statue. He's got his hands clasped behind his back with his coattails over his hands, and he's walking. He's kind of got that, you know, how he would walk. He'd kind of lean forward a little bit, and he'd have that scowl on his face. And it's been there for years. If this continues, they'll want to take that down, too. They'll call him a misgenist. Uh, mis- what do they call that? Guys who don't like women. Misgenist or mis... Um, I can't think of the right term. But, you know, he drank. He smoked. He had, you know, just... He had some pretty nasty views about different groups. Guess what? That doesn't change the fact he was one of the most influential men in modern history. That while I won't say he won World War II all all on his own, he certainly was an inspiration for millions of people around the world and allowed us to continue to fight, even through the darkest times, the greatest challenge the world has ever seen. So are we going to start taking those statues down? Should we take down the statue of Montcalm? Because guess what he did when he wasn't holed up in Quebec City? He went out on military campaigns, and he had uh, uh, raids on different enemy camps, whether it be Native or British. He wasn't exactly the nicest guy either, by today's standards. But he was doing the same thing that everybody else was doing in those days. If you, you know, if you don't understand, there's, and I've mentioned this, this series of books before, but I think it's worth repeating. There's a book, a set of books called Montcalm and Wolf, Part 1 and Part 2, written, oh, I know the name of the guy and I can't think. It's written in 1884. Okay, so it's, it's well, it's over 100 years old now. But I've got a copy of, of both sets at home, and I'm on my second time through it. And you know what? It is probably one of the most enlightening reads I've ever had because it talks about, you think that North American history is relatively peaceful. And compared to European history, it is. But that doesn't mean it was peaceful. They had campaigns. They had wars between the French and the British. Well, by European standards, they were skirmishes. Between the Americans and the French and the British and the Americans. And just, it went on. And the natives amongst different tribes and the natives, there were certain groups that would side with the French and certain groups that would side with the British. And the corruption went on, especially in Quebec City. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Because mankind in, in and of his nature hasn't really changed much. They really haven't. In the last, oh, I don't know, 10,000 years, people are still selfish. People are still greedy. People still lust for power. All these things are true. The only difference are the gadgets we have now. Okay, that's about the only difference. We don't have, uh, we haven't overcome our basic, uh, well, the term, the basic faults and flaws that are inherent in human nature. In Christian circles, we call them sins, okay, our flawed or broken nature. But the point I'm making is we are looking back with a sense of superiority on people we do not understand, we do not understand their culture. We do not understand the way the world was at the time they were alive and passing moral judgments on them. And I don't think that's fair. So when I see this stuff about, uh, like I would no more want uh, Montcalm's statue taken down than I want um, uh, McDonald's taken down because it's part of our history, good or bad. I don't want the statue of Brock taken down. 
okay? Even though I like the guy. You know, the statue of Tecumseh. There's a statue of, of uh, uh, the, the um, uh, war chief Tecumseh. Was he a Pontiac Indian? I forget what tribe he comes from. But he was one of the uh, most, he wanted the, uh, the Indian Confederation. That's what he was fighting for in the, er, in the early 19th century alongside Brock in the, in the War of 1812. And he was killed on the field of battle just south of London, Ontario. Now, up here by the War Memorial, there's a whole bunch of statues, bronze statues that are about life size. And one of them is Tecumseh. Should we take that one down? No, of course not. He wasn't the most peaceful of people. He killed his share of people. So, you know, history is what it is. And if you can't live with it, then the problem isn't the fact it's history. The problem is yours. All right. Time to take another quick break, and we'll be back right after this. My cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them council sent you. That'll make them smile. Ron Barr, General Manager and CEO of the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area, and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario, and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck, so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night, and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. that to an end no bring that to an end come on there we go i'm figuring this tech stuff out when it comes to the computer at least the laptop still got me beat all right does anybody out there know who mark levin is he's an american talk show host and he's a bit of a firebrand i've heard him before highly educated man very articulate passionate like wow um well he's he's some would call him bombastic and I'm not sure that doesn't apply. However, he also is a hardcore conservative. And it's funny that left-wing talk show hosts don't seem to go very far. They don't, they don't get much of an audience. They certainly don't uh, last very long. I don't know of many left-wing talk show hosts that aren't supported by the public purse that you know, can, can survive in the free market. They just can't do it because they're... They're just not very popular um, for some reason. The exceptions, of course, are the ones like if uh, CBC, you've got different talk shows on there. But if it wasn't for CBC, nobody would listen. The Americans have NPR and that kind of thing. 
But for the most part, for a talk show host to step out into the marketplace, if you're going to make any money at it, if you're going to try to attract an audience, you better be right wing because lefties just don't make it. You know, they just get shot to pieces. Anyway, uh, so this Mark Levin guy is a, a talk show host. I believe he's out of New York City. And I often listen to him on, uh, uh, you know, late Wednesday night. I'm driving back to the apartment or whatever. And uh, I'll catch a few minutes of his show. And while he tends to be very bombastic and, and loud and, uh, you know, he's not afraid to shout somebody down, he also does make some excellent points. And he went on to, on his show, now I can't play the um, audio clip or I'd let you listen to it, but I can tell you what he said. And basically he put up a defense of capitalism because everybody's talking about this anti-fascist, you know, uh, whole this whole anti-fascist thing. And his assertions are the capitalists are the real anti-fascists, not the progressives or lefties. So basically he makes the argument in this monologue of his where he talks about how uh, that capitalism is actually the great, um, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a revolutionary idea. Let me read to you just a little bit of the, of the text of what he had to say. Freedom-minded people need to work to break up the ideological monopoly at public schools and college campuses that only teach anti-capitalist ideas. Capitalism is revolutionary. Communism and socialism aren't revolutionary. It's just another form of autocracy of centralized government control, centralized governmental control over the individual. He added that capitalism is race-neutral, religion-neutral, and that big government is the opposite. Now, think about that, race-neutral and religion-neutral. If you look at capitalism, if you go into a grocery store and you buy a dozen eggs, does the cashier care whether you're black, white, green, yellow, orange, or blue? No. The only question is, can you pay for the eggs? The answer is yes. They take your money. You take the eggs. It's a fair exchange. You're happy with the price of eggs or you wouldn't have bought them. And they're happy with the price because it would have changed. They wouldn't sell them for that if they weren't happy with it. So they make a little bit of money. You go home and make a couple of omelets. That is capitalism in a nutshell. It's the great equalizer. It provides for people an opportunity to succeed in ways that no other system can. Rebutting the Antifa radicals who claim the anti-fascist mantle, Levin explained that capitalism is the real form of anti-fascism. Let me skip down a little bit. Capitalism is anti-fascism, anti-communism, anti-anarchy, and anti-authoritarianism. It is the only true humane and compassionate economic system that exists. Uh, he points out the situation in North Korea and Venezuela as examples in, of life on the other end of the political spectrum. So he goes on. He makes a great case. He said, look, basically that with a capitalistic system, the only thing that matters is the, the opportunity to succeed. That's the only thing that matters. It's not outcome-based. It's, it's opportunity-based. In other words, everybody has the same opportunity. What you do with it is up to you. No transaction is the same. No business is the same. No, uh, you know, if you buy a house, then your experience of buying a house is going to be a little bit different than your neighbor's because it's not the same house. There's different conditions that affect it. Yet under socialism and communism, everything's supposed to be equal. Everything, you shouldn't have a house that's two square feet bigger than your neighbor's because obviously you had to steal that two square feet from somebody else and that's not fair. You know, or if you have a dollar more in your pocket than the guy next door, or he has a dollar more than you, he owes you 50 cents to level the playing field. That's not the way it works because that's not fair either. So he makes a great, uh, a great, um, 
point with this, and if you go on my Facebook page, uh, you'll have you, the the clip is there. You can hear it for yourself because he makes a much better case of it than I'm doing at the moment. But the bottom line is, this is something I've always felt is is true anyway, because conservatism, properly understood, really can be summed up in one five-letter word, M-E-R-I-T, four-letter word. I can't count. <laughs> merit. That's what conservatism is all about. It's merit. The only thing that matters are what you bring to the table, not the not what you wear, not what you look like, not what you believe in, not who you sleep with. None of that matters. What skill sets do you bring to the table? And if you have the best skill sets, you get the job. If you're a better businessman than the guy across the street, then you're going to make more money. He's got the same opportunity than you do, but if you're better at it, then you're going to make more money. And it's how you continuously improve performance and keep the cost low. Anyway, so I just thought it was worth mentioning that because that kind of stuff is another one of these situations where, you know, we just we really have forgotten how good we have it in North America because we are a capitalistic system. Understand this, that a lot of the people who rail against the capitalistic system got to the place where they're railing because capitalism allowed it. How many of them drove or took a bus or rode a bike? All of those things come from the capitalist system. How many of them had signs spray-painted with anti-capitalistic slogans? Who made the paint? Who made the little board they stuck that stupid little sign to? Who made the cardboard to put the, put the lettering on the sign? Where did all that stuff come from? Who made the stock, Birkenstock sandals they're wearing? Did these companies all do it for free? No, of course not. So they're okay with capitalism that suits them. But they're busy blowing both feet off, protesting the very system that allows them to be stupid. It just never made any sense to me. It just never did. People complain about, you know, the top 1%. Well, as uh, Ben Shapiro points out, uh, or no, uh, Mark Mark Levin made this in his monologue. He says, look, you know where people are getting, uh, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer? In China, in Venezuela, and in Russia, and in North Korea. You know, not saying that there are no poor here in North America, but if somebody is poor, and all they are wanting is an opportunity. That can be provided. Because, first of all, poor is a mindset. It's not a, it's not a, financial, it's not a financial condition. Being broke, okay, if you know, poor is a mindset. Being broke is a financial condition. Being poor is a mental state. That's a better way to put it. Because if, you're, if in your head you're poor, you will never make the decisions necessary to break that cycle. If somebody has uh, lives in a cycle of poverty, the answer is break the cycle of po poverty by making a good choice. All right. Uh, if you have, if if you had a, a um, I was listening to Ben Shapiro tell a story on a clip, and he said he had a caller uh, that called in. She was 18 years old, a single mother. She'd gotten her GED, but didn't have money for daycare. And she wanted to go to school, get her, you know, improve her skills, and get off food stamps, or whatever she was on. And he asked her about her 
you know, her, her personal circumstances, you know, what's your family life like, what's going on around you. And she said, well, my mom was a single mom too. And says, I just, she said, I just don't want to end up like that. I want to, I don't want to live this way. And he said, okay. And on his show, he threw a hundred bucks on the table and he was able to raise six or $7,000 for it to get her the daycare she needed so she could go out and get whatever skill set she needed to be able to get off welfare. All she wanted was the opportunity because people don't want to be on, you know, they don't want to be on welfare. They don't want to, nobody wakes up today and go, oh, I'm glad I'm on welfare. It's humiliating. It's It's dehumanizing. Now, there are some, I shouldn't say nobody. There are some who, who are just so lazy and so unmotivated that they just as soon stay home, lay on the couch, and play Xbox all day long, knowing the check's coming in, and they got to drag their butts out of, the, out of the house once a week to go get groceries, you know, based on the welfare check. There are those people. But I don't think there's anybody out there with any shred of self, self-respect who's on, who's in an economic situation where that is the, the case, where they, you know, have to look to their neighbor through the government for a handout that likes that. I just don't believe that's true. And I and Ben made that point very clearly in that audio clip. And he said, I don't do this all the time, but there was something about her, you know, that there was a certain note of truth in her voice, and I believed her, that she wanted, all she was lacking was uh, a few dollars to be able to step out and make a good decision and break that cycle of poverty. Because that's what it takes. It start, instead of making bad decisions, and let's face it, if you end up in a, psych, in a recurring cycle of, pro, of uh, poverty, it's because you're making bad choices. It's not because the, the machine is holding you down. And I'm speaking in a very general sense here. So I just, I just thought that that made a lot of sense to me. That really, um, when I was looking at that or thinking about that, I thought, yeah, okay, that if government, if, if government... If people, if there was a way, in other words, let me put it to you this way. If you knew that your neighbor, okay, was struggling, was out every day looking for work, working hard, and just, you know, you knew it was only going to be a matter, but the the big hamstring, the the big problem with him getting a job was he didn't have a car. And you had three of them sitting in your driveway. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to go to him Drop the keys to one of those set the car in his in his hand and say you can drive this. Once you find a job, you can keep driving it until you can put enough money in the bank to be able to buy your own. Then you can give mine back. Wouldn't that be great? Because that you, you and you got to be see the thing is what that requires though is that requires you to pay attention to what your neighbors are doing around you. You have to understand the situation. Because there's some people who would just take that and run with it as an advantage and where, you know, they wouldn't treat it, it wouldn't go very well, okay? But if you know that, that these people are sincere about trying to break that cycle and you've got something that you own or some money that you have that could help them break that cycle, wouldn't you do it if you knew it would work? So why does the government have to get involved? If more people took that attitude, we wouldn't need a lot of the social programs we have. Because social programs are not designed to break the cycle of violence, or not violence, of of economic dependency on the government. They're meant to ensure it. Otherwise, we'd have solved teen pregnancy, we'd have solved poverty, we'd have solved homelessness, we'd have solved STDs a long time ago. 
Anyway. So I just felt I had to get that off my chest because, man, I'm telling you, some days that kind of stuff just drives me crazy. Now, going from one thing to another as far as drive me crazy, you know, everybody knows I love to hate the U.N., and I have another reason to hate them now. Not that I need it anymore. But one of the things that bothers me is when the United Nations gets involved in internal, uh, in the internal affairs of, uh, of member states. Now, they do it here in Canada on a regular basis, and we seem to bow down and kiss the ground. They walk on, and it makes me sick. As far, if, I was the king for, if I was the king of the country, I would take them off the plane. I'd give them a, a Tim Hortons double-double. I would go and give them maybe a beaver tail, a couple of little nice little snacks from Canada from different outlets, and say, glad you came. There's your plane. Don't miss it. Goodbye. In other words... I turn around, give them a coffee, put them right back on the plane, and send them right back where they came from. In other words, you're not welcome. We do not need the United Nations messing around in our backyard. That's not what the United Nations is supposed to be for. Now, the United Nations has failed in its main mandate 100,000 times. They couldn't, even when they do, um, you know, go to the security side of things, like look at the Korean War, it failed because you had Russian generals running it, or not Russian, communist generals on both sides of the war. No wonder they, it, it was a, a stalemate. So they couldn't win that. They've been a disaster everywhere they've gone. Uh, the, everything they touch turns to mud. And there's nothing they do that couldn't be done better by another organization somewhere else, usually a private one. I can't think of anything they do that couldn't be done better in private hands. Uh, so anyway, they've, they've decided, and now they're going to come to Canada again, and they're going to tell us that we're horrible people because, the story's out of B.C., uh, the U.N. Anti-Discrimination Panel tries to put the finger in B.C. Hydrocyte Dam Project. They're trying to stop this dam, a major development, thousands of jobs, Millions of dollars in economic activity, and they're upset about it. A United Nations panel says the construction of the British Columbia's $8.8 billion Site C dam should be halted until there's a full review of how it would affect indigenous land. Well, how much do you need to know about it? You put up a dam, you back up a river, just like when you built the St. Lawrence Seaway, there's towns that no longer exist that got submerged. They just, the water rose up and people had to move. So we need the UN to tell us this? The recommendation is contained in a report by the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, which has completed its periodic review of how Canada complies with the world's body treaty to end ra uh, racial discrimination. I'll tell you what, Mr. UN man, you go to the Sudan and you tell them to stop the, the child marriage. You go to Yemen and you put an end to the famine. You go to Tehran and tell them to stop executing people just because they're gay or because uh, they were had the unfortunate uh, incident of being thrown in jail because they went out without their husband while they, and while they were in there got raped and then were stoned to death because they had sex outside of marriage. You go and sort that out and then you come back and talk to us. We have no, it's just, this stuff, 
Why we put up with it is what blows my mind. The United Nations is not the golden child that every that so many too many people think it is. We ought to just take take you know what recall the ambassador hang a gone fishing forever sign on the doorknob and say and leave a little note that says we might check our 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 voicemails once in a while if we think of it someday maybe on the sign flip them a bird tear down the Canadian flag at, at the CN build at the UN building tear down the UN flag anywhere it flies within this country and say bugger off we don't need the UN all right. So that's that. It's just stuff that just gets under my craw. And someday I'll figure out what a craw is. All right. Now, there's an Antifa group. Uh, I think that's how you say it. Antifa. Uh, out west. And it's called the Revolutionary Abolitionist Movement. Now, I'm going to share with you a little of their political framework, what the things that they believe in. Uh, let's see if I click on that one. Uh, okay. Now, understand what this, this group is, okay? These people want anarchy. These are the people who are the ones running around in the United States and in the Western world uh, beating up anybody violently, violently um, who they don't like. They don't have any problem using violence to further their agenda. They don't have any problem with doing a lot of things. And to t tell you the truth, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm just a little bit tired of them. So let's uh, let's dig into these guys a little bit and figure out what they're up what they're up to or what they're all about. And this comes from their revolutionary revolutionary abolitionist movement. This is under the political framework introduction. So if you want to go look it up, let me go back a click and you can read it for yourself it's called burn down the american plantation a call for revolutionary abolitionist movement uh and then you if you just google revolutionary abolitionist movement you'll find it then click on political framework read it online like i'm going to do when this opens up again come on uh, read it online there it is okay all right so here's here's what they have to say for themselves as revolutionary dreams evaporated, the century turned and poverty and despair became etched so deeply in our existence that the lofty political dreams we aspired to in the past became myths. The Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army's actions have become distant legend and their political stance tales. Stances, tales. This is not well written. Nixon's counter-revolution transitioned smoothly into Reagan's and then to Clinton's with such sheer barbarism, the city still have yet to clean their blood-stained streets. As family after family was torn apart and poverty took its toll, our revolutionary history wasn't denied, but simply forgotten. Even as the fighters of the recent past sit behind penitentiary walls and the symbols of revolution were transformed into commodities, their revolutionary intentions were buried and forgotten by many. With the rise of the 20th century liberation movement in the United States and abroad, from socialist and national liberties, liberation struggles to the Black Panther Party, the U.S. government fought to ensure its hegemonic dominance of the world system. The powerful proclaimed the end of history. The Black Revolution had been overwhelmed and socialist movements discredited due to the Soviet Union's centralization and collapse. The U.S.-led capitalist world system finally had complete hegemonic reign over the entire globe. George Bush proclaimed a new world order, and Bill Clinton had the liberty to act freely in the world with little impediment to U.S. power. Despite this unforeseen cracks, 
quickly emerged. And it goes on for quite a while. But uh, the bottom line is, uh, let's see if I can just grab the last couple paragraphs here to give you an idea. These guys are lunatics, by the way, if you haven't figured that out by now. The state, in complicity with white supremacist organizations, has done everything in its capacity to ensure the relations of slavery were entrenched in U.S. political, social, and economic life. In doing so, it ensured that its slave populace and other targeted populations would remain in bondage, trapped in its carceral apparatuses. <laughs> Where do these guys get these words, man? In, recre in reaction to the rise of Black Lives Matter movement and the rise of a black man to a height of its political machine, coupled with the decline of U.S. imperial power in the 21st century, hegemonic power birthed the only logical solution to preserving its dominant grip, a fascist movement to take control of the state. The ascendance of Donald Trump to power is the natural outcome of the white supremacist state. These guys are complete and utter lunatics. All right, I'm going to take a little break, refresh my teacup, and when I come back, we will have more right after this. And now I just got to find where we are. Okay, we'll be right back after this. So Nick is reloading and taking a much-needed break. Not that he needs one. But maybe it's a good thing. So if you want to fire him off an email, just uh, send it to nick at latenightcouncil.com. That's simple, huh? Nick at latenightcouncil.com. Or better yet, call now. Hey, I know he could talk forever, but you know what? If you're doing talk radio, you love the calls. 343-700-4390. That's 343-700-4390 for the Capital Region. And if you can't get through on that line or you live far, far, far away, like we're talking about Alaska, 1-844-562-4766. That's 1-844-562-4766. Now, our call service is automated. You won't be talking to a live person until you're live on air. Don't sweat it. Just follow the prompts and while you're on hold, and, and, and you'll be fine. night does not exist without advertisers so if you want to buy time you contact either myself jc at latenightcouncil.com or you can contact nick if you're more comfortable with him and of course i certainly understand that you can contact nick at latenightcouncil.com the ads are like really really cheap i mean you're gonna you're gonna love them okay you're, you're, we've, we've made them quite accessible Feedback is always welcome. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. And thanks for tuning in. Now, back to Nick at Night.
All right. Thanks for sticking with me, folks. Uh, let's see the numbers. I should give them out a little more often. 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. That's 343-700-4390-4390 or 844-562-4766. Oh, look at that. We have a caller already. So let's go talk to whoever that is. Good evening. Welcome hey, to the Nick Knight Show. It's Mike Nick. Hi, Mike Nick. It's Mike. Yeah, it's Mike Nick again. <laughs> you got me because it's cut out. <laughs> uh, no problem. What's on your um, mind tonight? Something that has been eating at me for a while, and and I've I've been sort of last week I was listening. One other another fellow I've been listening to over the last uh, well this past year is a guy named Vince Coakley. He's uh, he's in uh, I think he's in South Carolina. Uh, online, I listened to him over online, and uh, uh, another solid conservative with strong Christian background. And and uh, uh, anyways, he was he was talking about this uh, business of tearing down statues and attacking history and rewriting history and all of that. Mm-hmm. And he and he made the comment about um, what's being taught in schools. And he said, "Do you realize that that?" Some of these people that are teaching your kids, and I'm, I'm not just talking necessarily the teachers, although a lot of teachers obviously share this mentality, but, but the people that are even uh, designing and developing these programs that are teaching them pure Marxism, that are teaching them pure secularism, even in Catholic schools. Um, and, and, you know, like Coakley basically raised the question, do you realize that you have people teaching your children that you probably wouldn't even allow in your home? Yeah. Now think about that. That's that's a scary thought. And and what are they doing? And we're seeing story after story of, you know, kindergartens being gardeners being subjected to uh, drag queen story time with gender reveals and then kids going home crying and not understanding what the heck's going on. I mean, you, you know, like you're you're sort of at the mercy of this stuff. And people, you know, they don't a lot of people, especially here in Canada, where we're working, you know, our, our disposable income is, is at an all-time low. Um, so people are working two, you know, two jobs. Both parents are out working. It's very hard to keep. You know, I, I'm sure a lot of people would love to homeschool. I know you at one time homeschooled. We sure um, it's, not, it's just not feasible for everybody, though. And, 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 and you know, that, too, is intimidating. And, and I think there's something to be said for... You know, like when we talk about platforms for new parties and such, we're not even discussing how do you how do you get control of the education system that is cranking out communists and Nazis. Well, That's fun- really what that is. Like let's let's quit pussyfooting around what liberalism is. It's statism. That you can all different versions of statism. There's Nazis. There's fascists. There's there's communists. There's this. There's that. The Fabians. Progressives. But it's all basically the same thing. It's yeah. anti-liberty. Um, that was kind of Mark's point, and he even touched on the educational system. So, you know, like, you, you, we never even talk about or discuss how are we going to stop cranking out all these kids. We see all these people out there in, in Antifa and Black Lives Matters, and they're, they're backing Trudeau, and they're, they, you know, they're, they're basically being corralled 
because they're basically been indoctrinated into like a cult-like mentality. Imagine walking into the Church of Scientology and telling them the guy made it up. They're going to look at you and laugh or throw you out of there. They're not going to listen to you. Well, that's what we've turned all of our kids, everyone around us, all the TV, the music, everything coming at you 24-7 is pushing Marxism, Marxism, Marxism all day long. But here's the, and then we're out there saying capitalism or, or, or God or faith or family, and they just look at us. You might as well be speaking in tongues at them. They don't understand it they recoil from it they've been when so I, trained today i was uh, down at the i spent some time down in the national archives on wellington street and while i was in there i got talking to an, uh, a lady a little older than myself and was uh, remarking on a uh, book i was just flipping through while waiting to talk to the archivist and it was the uh, a map of uh, the counties of lincoln and welland dated in 1867 and in it it talked about all the major people who influenced their local history, how the counties came to be, some of the major players, the events that happened. They even talked about Brock, for crying out loud. And I, I said to her, I said, you know, the tragedy, the tragedy is these kids re, re, who grow up in that area have no idea who the streets are named after or why, have no idea who founded the place, have no idea. They wouldn't even know who Brock is, even though it's a statue right there at Queenston Heights. You know, it's, it's huge. So she said, you know, I dragged my kids when they, were, when they were still home to every battlefield, every historical marker, monument, museum I could think of to try to get them interested in their own history. And she said, I just don't know how. And I said, the reason why that this counterculture, if you want, uh, is so successful is because when you are, let's say, between 12 and 24, you are the single most volatile animal on the planet. Not only are your hormones raging, but you're trying to figure out who you are as a person. Excuse me for a second. You're trying to sort out where you fit in the world, and then you get this. So your emotions are running all over the place. You have no sense of history. You don't think anything happened before you were born. And somebody in a school somewhere comes along and says, you know, this is terrible. This has never been worse, and points out all these perceived sins. And you go, you being 14 or 15 years old, get mad, say, oh, we got to fix this. We got to. And they get all pumped up. And this is how the socialists and the progressives uh, end up with so much of the youth because they fan those young that young enthusiasm that should be channeled into more constructive areas like scientific research, uh, trades, industry, capital, you know, in, into capitalism, these kinds of things where they can actually produce things. Instead, they turn them into little Marxists trying to change the world when if they had a little bit of perspective taught with the passion and understood who they were and where they came from, then they wouldn't be so easily easily manipulated, and that's what the Marxists have done so well. Is they have that's why they don't want history taught, because when people know what your history is, you feel a bond to it, good or bad, and you don't. They don't want that. They do not want people rallying around the red and white. They want them thinking about how terrible, you know, Bay Street is or Wall Street is. They want them thinking about landowners and business owners are greedy capitalists and don't pay their employees fair wages. And it's all because that's how you undermine a stable society. You don't do it from the outside in. They learned that lesson. You do it from the inside when, out. 
And that's exa- that is partly why they're doing it. It's not just that we don't feel a bond to it, but it's very easy to lie. If I don't know anything that's about George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, for example, hey, they were slave owners. What? They were slave owners? Well, the heck with those guys. Um, you, you, all of a sudden, you're throwing them under the bus. You have no idea the context or, or um, what they actually felt about it or what they did about it. So the moment you don't know your history, you can be lied to. Um, it, it, if you remember, it's a bad example, but there was a, there was a Star Trek Next Generation. I was a total geek. I still am. <laughs> uh, there was an episode of Star Trek Next Generation where the, the Enterprise crew there something happens and they all wake up with amnesia and there's a crew member that's not part of the crew telling them helping them rediscover who they are and they figure out that they're on a mission a war mission and they got to go and kill these people who are they're at war with and so they proceed to follow through with it and they start blowing everybody away only to realize that something feels wrong this doesn't feel right how could this be why are we pulverizing these people there's not even a match for us and eventually they figure out they were duped. Well, isn't that essentially what is going on with the progressive movement? Isn't that what they've done? They've, they've done a good job of indoctrinating and erasing and distorting history, but now to such a degree that they can pretty much guide you into any direction. They want to lead you. They get you pumped up on emotion. That's what they're doing with all of this business. I'm even seeing articles by supposed conservatives who are then defending the alt-right when they should be denouncing the alt-right. Who gives a crap what the alt-right or Nazis do? What does that have to do with conservatism? But they see these groups fighting with each other, and they figure, well, if I'm not with that group, I must be with this group. But we're not with any of those groups. They, do things... I don't care that there's different flavors of, of fascists. Well, one of the things <laughs> I, fight I, it out. I pointed out, I, I posted a clip on Facebook about four or five days ago, maybe maybe three or four days ago, about a CNN panel that literally blew up in CNN's face. They went and got half a dozen people off the street, sat them down, and this is when Trump, uh, the whole Charleston thing, or, or Charlottesville, whatever it's, whichever town it is, I can't remember now. Yep. Uh, yep. When all that happened, and it took two days for, for Trump to respond. Okay, never mind the fact that Obama not only didn't respond in many cases, he blamed the cops for the problem when it was in Baltimore and places like that. That didn't seem to matter. It was all Trump's fault because he didn't come out fast enough. So they asked yeah. they asked them, um, what do you think? Do you think he should have – what do you think of what he said? Could he have – should he have done something different? Or, you know, she was trying to get them to indict Trump. And they all said, you know, raise your hands. Not one of them moved. And then she said, well, surely – you know, she made the point that these these two groups are fighting, and one guy said, "Yeah," and Trump was right. There were bad guys on both sides, and he said mm-hmm. she she coached, she she was trying to egg him on, and finally she he said to her, "I can't believe you're making me pick between Hitler and Stalin. Yeah, exactly. They're both bad." And she just the now, whole thing now, just blew up in their face. I loved it. Now that's lucky though that somebody actually knew what what that meant and understood it. But how many? How many kids don't even understand what socialism is? I see uh, you, you get in debates, I get in debates all the time on Facebook. We run across them where people literally don't know what socialism is. They don't know what Nazis are. They don't understand what statism is. There are people who are, who are more disposed, predisposed to liking capitalism, but they don't even understand how that works. No, that's um, and, and, you know, like, when you, you remember the days of good old Lowell when he would ask people, 
you know, do you know where the St. Lawrence Seaway is? And it, it, it sounded like he was being kind of um, smug with people, but the truth is he was making a point, and it was, a, and it was unfortunately a, a, a scary one, which is that people who live here don't even know the basic geography of where they live and grow up, and, uh, and you know, if they don't know those basic things, can you imagine the more serious things they don't understand? We yeah. don't understand how our systems work. We don't understand how what government is or how it works or, or how what democracy is or what's republicanism or um, what does limited government really mean? What is too big government? And do we don't we don't think these things through. We don't think our values. Um, we don't in churches. You're not really challenging or learning or growing your faith. You're not you're not reading the Bible and trying to understand it. You go, you punch your clock, you go home, you figure I'm a good Christian. I even put some money in the plate. That's good enough. Yep. But do you understand what it means? Are you really applying it? All right, so Mike. when you think about that and you think about the education of the kids around us and generation after generation being turned out even more Marxist than the last group, that's the, that's the real, that's part of the battle we're facing. So while we're trying to wrestle back control of the government and get, get the track or get the ship back on the right track, so to speak, um, you know, we're not even addressing that all these volumes of people actually think the opposite way. Yeah, We've got to somehow get view, control of that as well. Yeah, and from the government's point of view, that's exactly the way they want it. Mike, i got to stop you there. Appreciate the call. Thanks. Have a good night. All right. Well, if you want to do what Mike just did, you can always call me at 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. I want to give a quick shout-out to our listeners in the United States. Glad to have you guys on board. And there's actually... Uh, one over in there's uh, listeners in Germany as well. So if you're listening in Germany and you're uh, maybe you're an expat or you're just interested in international affairs, uh, welcome to the show. I hope you're enjoying it. All right, now uh, going back to Sir John A. for a moment. The story there's a story uh, more recently than the one I was telling you about. Um, that's yesterday, and what I'm surprised at the headline is all that really matters here. Only 25% of Canadians support Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario's motion to rename John A. McDonald schools. All right, I'm surprised the number is as high as it is. And, of course, the more conservative we are, the more you object to it. The conservatives are against the idea by 76%. Uh, the liberals are against it by 56%. But even the NDP, 41% are against uh, the move. So it's not a very... It's not a very popular move. Uh the only time I've seen numbers higher than this was when they paid out $10 million to Omar Cotter. It was like 80% of Canadians were dead set against it, which is really hard to get consensus in this country on anything. But on that one, everybody was on the same side. So it just goes to show you that the Teachers Federation, had be, uh, the uh, Elementary Teachers Federation, had better be very careful because a lot of people here do not like this move. And this will come back and hurt the liberals if they're not careful in the way they handle it, which is just fine with me. All right, now, uh, let's see. What was that story? Oh, yeah, all right. I'm going to take a break because it's that time. But when I come back, I want to ask you a question. When is it enough? I will tell you what I'm asking about when we get back. You stay, stay right there. I'll be right back.
EMM Group is the authorized IntegraSpec distributor for the greater Ottawa area, providing technically advanced insulated concrete farms. The design virtually eliminates waste while providing the ultimate energy-efficient, quiet homes and structures. With over 40 years' experience in the concrete industry, EMM offers the best product to homeowners and contractors. Canadian-made IntegraSpec is now being used worldwide. More info can be found at IntegraSpec.com. Don't consider building any other way. Call your ICF specialist, 613-835-2600. For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches. But fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. All right. Thanks for staying with us, folks. We've got more straight ahead here. Okay, now, let me turn that off. Uh, turn that off. No, there we go. Oh, darn it. Come on, try it again. There we go. All right. Now, I asked before the break the question, when is it enough? <clears throat> the Toronto Star has a story called The Long Liberal Road to Indigenous Reconciliation. <sighs> this has been going on for decades. And I am sick to death of even hearing the term. And the reason is not because I have anything against natives or I think that it's all made up and none, nothing bad ever happened. No, on the contrary. There's no arguing with, with the fact that the residential schools happened and that, uh, you know, over the course of our history here in North America, you know, a lot of times they've gotten a pretty raw deal. I'm not arguing that. I am trying to say what I want to know is when are we done paying for the sins of the past. Show me how much that will take. Tell me what number it is, how much money we have to spend in order to satisfy, to pay atonement, if you will, for the sins of our forefathers for which neither you nor I had anything to do with. All right, let me share with you a little bit of this story. It was June 2015, and Justin Trudeau, then leader of the third party, and struggling in the polls, made what was seen by many at the time a rather impulsive promise. He pledged to implement all 94 recommendations of the Truth and Rec Reconciliation Commission that had been released that day by Justice Murray Sinclair. Monday, more than... Monday, more than 26 months after his Pledge of Reconciliation, a United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination reported it was alarmed that the Trudeau government continues to ignore multiple decisions by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal to close the gap in funding for child and family services of Indigenous children. Well, first of all, I couldn't care less what either of those organizations have to say about the way that Canada treats its Indigenous population. That's a Canadian issue, and it will be resolved by Canadians uh, not by the United Nations or any human rights tribunal because, well, you all know what I think of that. All right. Also, Monday, Trudeau arrived at Rideau Hall and announced he would dissolve the creaky old structures of the Indigenous and Northern Affairs Department, announced plans to kill the Indian Act and put one of his most trusted ministers into one of two Indigenous portfolios. In other words, 
he's rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. So I go back to this whole question because right now it doesn't matter uh, what he has to say about it. He is absolutely lousy at keeping promises, unless, of course, it's for Senate appointments to friends. Uh, he is just not not to be trusted. He just There's nothing he says that I can take seriously. Um, there's the guy, I call him a boy king for a reason. But what I want to know, because really what's, what, what's wrong with the way we do things now? And I'm going to make a distinction. There is a difference between the, let's say, the uh, natives and the uh, Inu uh, population in, in the Arctic. That you, those are almost two separate issues because you don't see the problems. If you notice, the problems aren't so much with the Inuit of the north as it is the natives in the rest of the country. If you're going to find alcohol abuse, and I'm not saying there's none in Inuit community, but not on the scale we see in many of the reserves uh, in Canada, and not all of them by any stretch, but where you do find it, that's where the bulk of the problem lies, is in the Attawapiskats of the world, and in the, um, uh, not Lac-Megantic, there's another one um, out in Manitoba, I think, is another real problem. You've got tiny little bands collecting vast sums of money. There was a, a band in Nova Scotia. The chief was making uh, well over $100,000 a year, and there was 26 people living on the reserve. It was just ridiculous, the amount of money they were taking in. And the vast majority of that money, the band members never saw. And if they did, it was because they were on the council on the, in on the chief's good books and in the council's good books. And that's why you have a situation in Attawapiskat. So it isn't we don't have a spending problem. We don't have our, and I get the reconciliation, some of it is about another issue, but right now uh, you have a problem with people living in third world conditions on reserves. That problem, to the best of my knowledge, still exists today. Nothing's been done, even though we've known about it now for two or three years or more. Now, I'm thinking about the Attawapiskat situation and Chief Spence. Uh, you have... In the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there's also the commission about the missing and, and uh, murdered Aboriginal women's, uh, we'll call it tribunal, I can't remember the, t the title. And they've got this whole panel set up and people keep leaving it because they can't get anywhere. And the reason is because we already know what happened. The RCMP have told us this years ago that the, the problem is native on native violence. But see, that doesn't fit the, that does not fit the What's the word I'm looking for? The narrative. Okay, it doesn't fit in with what's politically correct. It's got to be white man fault. Okay, it's got to be our fault. It couldn't be that there's native on native violence. Because even if there is, well, we're responsible. Well, how does that happen? How am I responsible for how another person treats a third party? Well, if you'd have looked after them to begin with, oh, so I see. See, there's an implied racism in that. And that what that is, is that without help, these people can't make it on their own. They're not good enough. They're not smart enough. They're not ingen they don't have enough ingenuity. That's, it. That's racism. And yet the people who are yelling at, at you and I over white man guilt, you know, trying to make us feel guilty for something we had nothing to do with, it must be the you know Western Europeans' fault, because the alternative is that these people 
uh, it, it's their fault. They're the ones who are beating on each other. They're the ones who are causing the problems. And that's what this whole thing is why this panel can't get anywhere. Now, by no means am I painting with, I'm not trying to paint with too broad a brush here. I, I know the vast majority of natives don't have these problems. Most of them don't live around reserves. Um, you know, we're talking about a small, a small population here. So I'm being very careful in accounting my words uh, to the you know to take keep that in mind. Is that I'm not by any means am I saying that every native is a problem? No, that's not true. Not even close. But where we do find problems, we do find drug addiction. We do find teenage pregnancy. We do find you know uh, domestic violence. It's because there is no accountability. It's because the band chiefs and the band councils are playing favorites with the money. And people are living in third world conditions. That's what's wrong. We got to fix that. Rearranging rearranging the the offices at the top end of the at the at the top end of the pyramid doesn't make any difference at all. That's not going to make one whit of difference to somebody some poor little 3-year-old out there in Attawapiskat living in a mold-filled house with no running water. Okay, isn't that just not going to work? Kasechewan was the name of the other place. It's just not going to help them. So how compassionate are we being by doing that? Are we being compassionate at all? But according to this, you know, oh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission says, and we're going to implement all 97 changes, and it isn't going to change a damn thing. Because what needs to happen is for where there are problems... Somebody needs to go and grab the people responsible, whoever they are. Lift them off their feet and shake them vigorously. Actually, more serious, to be more serious, you need to open up the books, do a forensic audit, and chase the leads wherever they follow. And wherever they end up, that's what they end up. And if somebody's guilty or if there's evidence of criminal wrongdoing, then whoever is at the other end of the evidence needs to be charged and needs to stand in front of a judge and have their day in court. And if they're found guilty, need to be imprisoned. And that means all the way from the lowliest band chief right up to the ministers of any government, regardless of its stripe, that's guilty of this. Liberal or conservative, I don't care. Because that's the only way you're ever going to get to the bottom of this. Putting new paint on a rotten house doesn't make the house last any longer. You know, painting a car with a blown engine doesn't work either. So that's what's wrong, and that's why this all this nonsense isn't going to work. Now, speaking of harassment, or harassment, yes, um, there is an MP. Uh, let's see if I can find him. Darshan Kang, okay, is a liberal MP who's been accused of sexual harassment. And he has decided to take a leave of absence, a medical leave, I believe it is, and Maybe the stress is getting to him, and there are health issues. I don't know. I can't. I'm not a doctor by any means. But what's important here is that he's been accused. Okay. Now he should stand down until the uh, until the investigation is over. And if he's innocent, he can step back into his poor, into his job, and uh, that's that, and move on. If he's guilty, then he should be charged and, and uh, tried in court of law. Well, that's only part of the story. You see, um, according to Mr. Trudeau, our boy king, 
Uh, harassment claim against the Liberal MP su is subject uh, the Liberal MP. Uh, let me just read the headline without trying to. Harassment claim against Liberal MP subject to new process, according to Trudeau. All right. Justin Trudeau said he's re relieved that the House of Commons now has a formal process in place to deal with allegations of harassment, thanks to allegations that he repeatedly sexually harassed a young female staffer in his office, allegations he strenuously denies. Trudeau has largely refused to comment while the new independent process runs its course. It's a change from what happened in 2014 when former Liberal MP Scott Anders, Scott Anders and Massimo Pacchetti were accused of sexually harassing two female New Democrat MPs. Trudeau suspended the pair from his caucus while an outside lawyer was brought in to investigate. The two resigned from caucus four months later. Kang has not been suspended and insists he plans to fight the charges. So that's the story. Now, you think, okay, so what? Well, I am so glad you asked. Because according to a story out of 2014, Wednesday, December 10th, actually, uh, what I'm point what I'm making the point I'm making is Mr. Trudeau is taking credit for making changes he didn't make. This was put into place over a year before Mr. Harper was no longer the prime minister. Oh, just under a year, 11 months. Okay. So this is from Wednesday, December, 7, December 10th, 2014. The conduct of MPs and their political staff is now subject to a new harassment policy that covers interactions both at the office and at work-related social gatherings away from Parliament Hill. The secretive all-party board of internal economy approved the new 19-page policy with provi which provides MPs, their staff, and those working in research offices with both informal and formal procedures for handling complaints involving harassment and abuse of authority. This is the process that's been in place since 2014 that Mr. Trudeau is claiming credit for. It didn't happen on his watch. He didn't make the changes. This is just, I know some people say, oh, you're making a great big deal out of nothing. No, I'm pointing out the man is loose and fast, fast and loose with the truth. He didn't make these changes. The previous government did. And it wasn't just, it was, it was an all-party thing. He was in the House of Commons when this happened. And yet he, he failed, somehow must have forgotten that it was the previous administration's policies that he's talking about. And he says it's, it's changes from what happened 24. He's referring to the, when he talks about the changes, he's not talking about the changes to the policy. He's talking about the, it's, it's a different outcome than what happened for Scott Andrews and Massimo Pacchetti because of the policies adopted back in 2014 under the previous government. So he's running around taking credit as if it's his initiative. Had nothing to do with him. He's just hoping people forget. Well, this came, I found this from, in a tweet from, a, from a, um, a senator from the upper chamber. And I forget which one it was or I would give them credit for it. I said, whoa, 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 they hold, said, hold it, hold it, hold it. We passed this back in 2014. This isn't new at all. So here we go again. The boy king can't tell, can't tell the truth if his life depended on it. Either that, he's got the worst memory in history. And I know I'm making a big deal out of, out of a, a mountain, out of a molehill here, but this is just, you know what? Little things. Have you ever heard the old tale, the old story, a bucket's filled one drop of water at a time? 
Well, even the smallest drop will sooner or later fill the bucket. And in this case, it's not a drop. It's a, it's a monsoon. I mean, one thing after another before long, you, you just can't trust. And I really want to trust my prime minister. I re, regardless of Stripe, the one thing I want from a prime minister is to know that, number one, he passionately loves the country. He's willing to do whatever it is to keep it safe and secure. And that no matter his political stripe, in times of crisis, when we need leadership, he will stand there and tell us the whole unvarnished, ugly truth. Now, that sounds like a mighty high standard, but not really. Because if he does that, and when I say he, I'm talking about any prime minister now, not just the boy king. If a prime minister were to walk, let's say we had a natural disaster or let's say um, uh, some kind of massive terrorist strike or whatever, something, something bad where, you know, it's a huge crisis. For the prime minister to walk to the microphone, reassure the nation and tell us the truth to the best of his knowledge, people won't care about his stripe. Because all they want to know is what's going on and what's being done about it. And is somebody at the top in control? Because then people will take confidence in that. But if you can't trust the man to tell you the truth, even on something like this, if you can't be trusted in little things, how can you be trusted in great things? How do we know that he'd tell us the truth? If we were to, if, if the parliament declared war tomorrow, would we trust him to tell us why? accurately if there was a major earthquake i'm just trying to imagine scenarios canada is so large that it's hard to imagine a scenario that would affect the whole country short of something like a global war you know so when, when but when things happen okay Let's say the forest fires in B.C., the floods in Calgary, the, the situation lack megantic. People look to the top for leadership. And if they trust it, that's great. That makes everybody feel safer. And at least they know that the, the people who are running the show know what's going on, care about them, and doing what they can to help. But if they don't trust them, it looks like crocodile tears. And with that, I need to take a break. Stick around. I'll be right back. Ron Barr, General Manager and CEO of the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario, and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck, so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night, and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays, and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile.
I think I played that clip earlier, but too bad I liked it. So there you go. All right, now, so that was my little rant about this whole thing about, uh, it, it little. you know, it's the little things. I really believe it's the little things that matter. You can tell the, um, the integrity of a man by how he takes care of the little things. Um, you know, if he... If he's, because the big things don't come along. That I guess what it boils down to, um, the big things in life don't happen all that often. You know, we we don't declare war in Canada very often. I think we've done it three times: the Boer War, World War One, World War Two. We didn't declare it in Korea. We didn't declare it in Afghanistan. Uh, we weren't in Vietnam. So I'm I'm gonna say I'm gonna say with three. And the War of 1812 was before we were a country. The Fenian raids weren't really, and they were before Confederation anyway. Uh, that was more just raids than than an actual conflict. Uh, the Northwest Rebellion was a rebellion, not a not a well. But I don't think the, the Parliament declared war. So we, it's something that very rarely happens in this country. I guess it's the point I'm making. So you don't have a, a. It's not like it has to happen all the time. It's not something we we make a habit of. So it's the little things that people look to. And the depth of your character can be judged by how well you pay attention to the little things. You know, to honesty. What's that saying about uh, integrity? Integrity is doing the right thing even when nobody's looking. That's, I guess, what I'm driving at. If he has the integrity to be honest about, and by he, I mean anybody, um, has the integrity to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not because it's going to score them any points on some poll somewhere. That's an integ- That's somebody with integrity. And that's the kind of thing we're lacking, and that's really what's sad. Now, speaking of what else we're lacking, what is it? And I will admit I have done this on occasion myself, not very often, but I have done it. And that is, the headline is, Distracted Driving, the Leading Causes of Collision. Uh, Ontario Provincial Police say distracted driving now causes more collisions than speeding and alcohol and drug-related collisions combined. The OPP said there have been 6,360 collisions on roads it's patrolled since January the 1st, compared with 4,700 collisions due to speeding and 1,158 crashes due to a driver drinking or alcohol taking or taking drugs. They say 47 people have died this year because of an inattentive driver, up from 39 the year before, who died... Uh, let's see, OPP Commissioner Vince Hawk said this for, This is further evidence that people who talk on their phones, text, or are distracted another way take a toll on the safety of other drivers around them. The provincial force will be conducting a distracted driving campaign over the Labor Day weekend. Distracted driving has led to more deaths than both speeding and alcohol and drugs on OPP-patrolled roads every year since 2009, with the exception of 2012. What is it about that blasted cell phone that makes people blank out. I remember there was a, a YouTube video I watched once where a guy was uh, proceeding through a light, and there was, I'll say she's 23, 24, there was a young girl driving, and ran right into him, right through the stop sign. And as she got out, she was still tex- texting. She hit him because she was texting, didn't see the stop sign. Ran right through this. He grabbed this thing out of her hand, threw it on the ground, and stomped on it and smashed it. And she was going, what? What? What are you doing? And he turned around and stomped back to his car. She didn't get it at all. She had no idea why she was mad, why he was so upset. 
I mean, and it's that's not the only time. You see people texting. I mean, look, distracted driving is not new. There's the old story of how, you know, the guy was watching the woman go down the highway, putting lipstick and makeup on, and, uh, you know, drifted into his lane. So he had to swerve, spilled his coffee, and dropped his donut, and, you know, all these things that he was doing that was making him just as distracted as her. It's not new. But there's something about cell phones. Now, what I don't understand, here's the thing I don't understand. There's no need for this because if you go out car shopping today, show me the make and model of car that does not have the ability to have wireless communications with your phone in the car. So you use a speaker in the the stereo speakers and a microphone built into the car already from the manufacturer. You pair it with the phone and you put the phone down and you can use your steering wheel. I've, I've, my, we just picked up a 2012 Fit for my wife. Guess what it can do? My wife's phone is paired with... Now, I can't get my Samsung to do it, uh, but that phone is paired with that car, so the call and the answer button are on under your left thumb. You never have to pick the phone up. You can text, you can talk, you can navigate. All the things you want to do while you're driving can be done Without ever picking the phone up. Now, in my case, because my car won't, my my uh, phone won't pair with the car, I have a little Bluetooth headset. It's about an inch long, inch and a half. Fits in your ear, and from there, with a little touch of a button on the side, I can do everything I just described. I can navigate, text, I can phone, take phone calls, all of that stuff. My cell phone stays on the console, where and it's plugged in, charging. I don't have to pick it up. I can do everything I need to do. I can do Google searches. I can make phone calls from Google searches over that. There's no reason, none, why anybody has to pick up a cell phone while they're driving. And yet you see it all the time. Now, what's really, you want to know why laws get passed? It's because of this. You wonder what one of the reasons why we have so many ridiculous laws is because we have so many ridiculous people. Now, sometimes laws are passed for nefarious in intent, okay? And there's a whole list of those. But in sometimes the laws are simply a response. You ever drive down a highway onto an on-ramp? I haven't seen too much of it here. But in the States, uh, when I was a trucker, I always marveled. You'd be going down onto I, pick your highway number, I-80. And, you know, you're coming down the ramp and you're shifting away and you're getting building up speed to merge into traffic. And at the end of the ramp, there's a no U-turn. Now, why do you think the state or the local government decide to spend the money on a no-U-turn sign at the end of a ramp merging onto a highway? Because at some point, some idiot had to thought, had to have thought, and then proceeded to do a U-turn the wrong way, got to the end of the ramp, and thought they could turn left down the highway, and uh, you know. And obviously there was a head-on collision or a near-fatal accident or a fatal accident, all because some idiot didn't know you don't turn. You, you're, when you go down that ramp, there's only one way to go. You merge into traffic and you keep on going. It's not a two-lane road. Excuse me. So the state had to spend who knows how much money, probably in the millions, to go out and buy thousands of these signs. And at the end of every single ramp, I forget what state it was in uh, where I first saw it, probably Ohio, knowing Ohio, um, or maybe Michigan. Who cares? It was one of those states. And you, you, you look at it and you go, really? 
really? Somebody or the sticker on the side of an aluminum ladder, you know, that says don't lean this up against the hydro a hydro line. Well, that's because aluminum is amazingly electrically conductive. And if you take that ladder and you put up against one of the high tension wires, there's a very good chance you're going to turn into a light bulb or a smoking heap of ash. And yet somebody had to do that. One of my favorite favorite videos and I say this because it's the the epitome of stupidity. And again, this is all about this is a bit of a walk from from distracted driving, but it's what the point I'm trying to make is some of the laws that we marvel at, you wonder why they got passed in the first place is because people do stupid things. And not just once. But there's this video on YouTube. You can look it up, How Not to Light a Fire. You just Google that. And these two guys are in are out in the field somewhere, and they've got this massive mound of scrap wood. It's like six or seven feet tall, eight or ten feet across. And the guy on top has a five-gallon gas can, the big one. Okay? And he's pouring gas all over the place. He dumps five gallons of gas on this thing. Then he throws the gas can off, and he stands there, and he laughs. And he says, now i gotta, I got to light this. So he gets down. He grabs a lighter. He grabs a wooden match, and he throws it at it. Now, one of the reasons why gas is so volatile is because the vapor the gas gives off is highly combustive. That's why we use gasoline in cars. Because it contains a tremendous amount of energy. It's also heavier than air. So when you do that, you when you put gasoline out over that and it hasn't a chance to evaporate, the vapors fill the air pockets in the wooden pile. So now you don't have just a little bit of gas to start a wood fire. You have a bomb. He throws the match on it and literally the camera gets knocked flying. And we never do find out the state of the poor slob, the, the idiot, who actually thought it was a, a good idea to dump five gallons of gas on a big wood pile, then light it on fire. Just plain stupid. So this is the kind of stuff where laws come in and make your life complicated and miserable because somebody out there tried to win the Darwin Award that year. Like turning left onto a highway at the end of an on-ramp. Okay? Or lighting... Uh, leaning a ladder against a high, uh, 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 high voltage wire. You know, these kind of things. So when you get to distracted driving, if people don't smarten up, you're going to see some kind of law that's going to limit your ability to use these things if you'll be able to use them at all in your cars. They're simply going to say no. Since it's kind of like a, a parent, you know, giving a child a certain number of chances to do something, and then finally they say, okay, that's it, you're done. And they take away the toy they're abusing or whatever the scenario is. And you wonder why we call it the the nanny state. Well, half the time we deserve it. So that's my little rant about that. But just like, holy cow. It's enough enough to make you crazy. Now, one of the things I was going to, I wanted to talk about gas prices, but uh, because of Hurricane uh, Harvey, you know, there's one thing, watching the flooding in her because of Harvey uh, has been amazingly sad. There was an old folks' home uh, that was flooded and took them. And these people, um, I've got them on Facebook here somewhere. And these elderly people are sitting in their recliners up to their waists in water. Let me see if I can find that picture real quick. 
and they're they're waiting to be rescued. Uh, and people are having fun at my expense about have you tried a bigger hammer and all that when I was trying to get that thing to go. Where did it go? Doon, 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 doon. It's here. I know it is because I put it up earlier. Uh, uh, Andrew Shear. Yeah, we're going to talk about him in a minute. Um, where did it go? All right. Anyway, they, if I thought I had it here. Uh, all right. Anyway, the picture is of, of these elderly people. Some are sitting on a couch. Some are sitting in lazy chair, lazy boys. Others are sitting in, you know, patio chairs. And they're sitting up to their waist in this is fetid water from the flood. And they have to be rescued. And it's a really, really sad story, uh, you know, about you know these people uh, have to go through that. But at the same time, there are also stories out there of people. Here it is. There's single residents rescued from Harvey floodwaters. And the picture... Uh, Literally, there's one lady, I'm looking at the picture now, looks like she's doing some knitting. And she's sitting in, a, in these, this big recliner chair with her feet up, and the water is up to her elbows. There's another old lady sitting in a, um, a wheelchair, and the water's in her lap. Anyway, so, but people have really come together down there. And uh, a lot of people are, are you know, the, 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 uh, there's going to be a lot of people try to make, try to make Trump the, uh, the, the bad guy here. Um, but I don't think that's the case because, you know, he went to Houston and said, don't worry, we'll get you back on your feet in no time. Well, what the heck did you think he was going to say? He's not going to, you know, he's not going to go out there, ah, oh, forget it, you guys are all screwed, you know, uh, come and see us next year. That's not how that works. But it, it's, it really, in a way, it, it, it puts, um, it really puts a hole in a lot of this racial disharmony stuff because there are multiple stories and pictures of people helping each other with no regard to skin color, like black people rescuing white people and white people rescuing black people. And and just, look, the, the issue is it's a life-and-death situation. They've already had, I think it's 27 uh, deaths. One police officer drowned in his car trying to get to his post. I mean, just a lot of tragedy. But amongst it all, and it's always this way at times of, um, of uh, tragedy or crisis, when you have people you know, do incredible acts of heroism. And sometimes on the other side of the coin, let's put it this way. Situations like this bring out the very best in people, and then sometimes it brings out the very worst. But by and large, it is the best in people that comes forward. And they will move mountains. They will do anything. There are some examples where that's not true. And one guy was a, uh, I can't remember the name of the church. He had a 16,000-seat church down there and said he couldn't open it for people who were um, displaced uh, because it couldn't get there. You know, that the, the highways are all blocked with water. Well, some of the overhead photography proved that wasn't exactly the case. And one of the things I like about public shaming is that you can get people to do the right thing even if they don't want to. And he has since opened the church and is allowing people to come in and seek shelter there because this is a long way from over. Uh, it's unfortunate that had to happen. I mean, the man is a multimillionaire. Uh, should have been one of the first things he did is to open the church and provide, you know, blankets and, and um, uh, food and, and set up some kind of relief station, if you want, with medical supplies and so on. He certainly wasn't lacking for resources. But uh, either way, he ended up doing the right thing. So... It was just a remarkable story of 
you know, human beings coming out and setting all the crap aside and just going out and trying to help. There was one story I was listening to on terrestrial radio about this poor guy. He's in his early 20s. I, it was on the radio, so I didn't see it, but he sounded like he was 24, 25 years old. He lived in a trailer, and the, the hurricane literally took everything from him, wiped him out, and he walked 12 miles through the floodwater uh, to where the reporter caught up to him, and the guy was really, really shaken. He was just uh, upset. He wasn't talking. He wasn't very lucid in his thinking. And what it came down to was he just wanted to get to his mom and dad. It was so bad that all he had left was this desire to go back and, and just be with his parents. And as soon as his interview was over, uh, he was talking, you know, said, look, mom, dad, if you're listening, I'm okay. I'm just trying to get home. And while just as soon as the interview was over, the reporter's phone rang, it was the kid's dad. So they kept the cameras rolling, and he talked to his dad. He got on a bus, and the family was reunited. So it was a really a human, uh, you know, a human interest story that just shows you uh, where people's priorities are uh, when things like this happen. All right, well... Oh, man, there was so much I wanted to get, else to get into. I wanted to talk about Andrew Shear. I'm beginning to think he may be turning into another Patrick Brown. I hope that's not the case. But he hasn't exactly embraced um, embraced the SOCONs who helped him get to where he is, considering where Brad Trost and Pierre Lemieux placed in the last leadership race. And it's beginning to feel like he is following the Patrick Brown model model of uh, thanks for the vote, now get lost kind of mentality. I hope that's not the case. Maybe we'll talk about that next week because right now we are out of time. I want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, sorry about the, the problem with Facebook. I will, this laptop, well, I'll have another laptop next week. We'll make it work. It'll be better next week. So I apologize for that. But. With that said, I'm going to wish you all a good night. Ubiqueritas et amor. Deus ibiest. Good evening. God bless. Don't let anything disturb your peace. And may you have a fair wind and a following sea. All the money that e'er I had I spent it in good company And all the harm I've ever done Alas, it was to none but me And all I've done for want of wit To memory now I can't recall So fill to me the parting glass Good night and joy be to you all. So fill to me the parting glass and drink a health whatever befalls. Then gently rise and softly call. Good night and joy be to you all. Of all the 
Yeah.